Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me this week are three people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack, but only when it's in black and white, and he's the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. That has to be in color. He's one of the co-hosts of the Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, Bobby Taylor. And I'm eating my swell Rice Krispie treats. <laughs> also with us, she has appeared as one of the co-hosts of both the Sunday Seconds with the Duke, the John Wayne Retrospective podcast, as well as the Golden Age of the Silver Screen podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. She's the sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half, Lori Flores. Honey, I'm home. Where's my dinner? <laughs> <laughs> I was leaving that for somebody else. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, finally, he's one of the co-hosts of the Male Bonding James Bond Retrospective Podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. You can follow him on Twitter at HeyBucker, Matt Palmer. Hey guys, I didn't know that Pandora's box was just a metaphor for Reese Witherspoon's vagina. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. We got blue already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lori's Googling how to get out of Skype call. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, welcome, everyone. And before we get started, we would like to thank all the returning listeners to the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MHMemories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about the occasional written film review and film summary, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, uh, where we're releasing our podcasts exclusively. Uh, once there, you can give us a like or a dislike. Uh, you can ring the bell for notifications so you'll get updates when we post new material. And you can leave a comment about either our opinions, the film that we're reviewing, or a suggestion for one of the films that you think is one of the top 100 films of all time. You can also go to our website at moviehousememories.com and you can leave some feedback there. Once there, you can also leave a comment about our podcasts or our the films that we have chosen. And you can also leave a star review rating of the film that we reviewed so that we can get a consensus rating from the MHN Podcast Network community. As always, we'd love to hear positive feedback, but we appreciate anything anyone has to say about any of our little shows. Now, with the horrible business out of the way, let's get on to Bobby's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time, or one of his suggested films, greatest films of all time, 1998's Pleasantville. And Bobby, do you have a somewhat 50s G-rated summary for us? Yes, it is. Can you tell me a story? 
Pleasantville is a present-day fantasy when two contemporary teenagers are transported magically into a classic black-and-white 1950s television show similar to Father's Knows, Father Knows Best's Best, <laughs> where their modern-day fish uh, is an old, uh, in an old-fashioned pond creates plenty of social and political changes to this fictional world. David, played by Toby Maguire, is a socially awkward t- loner who is an expert in every episode of the 1950s sitcom Pleasantville, where life is simpler and more idyllic than his current broken home. Meanwhile, his twin sister Jennifer, played by Reese Witherspoon, is mainly focused on her appearance and her increasing popularity. Their divorced mother uh, leaves Jennifer and David alone at home while she heads out of town for a rendezvous with her younger boyfriend. That evening, David wants to watch a Pleasantville marathon on television to win a contest, while Jennifer has a date with a local hot boy to watch a concert on the same television, causing a fight that destroys the remote control. A mysterious TV repairman played by Don Knotts appears and offers a special remote that is so good it can put someone right inside the show. Within moments, and against their wishes, David and Jennifer are zapped directly into the black-and-white, sterilized world of Pleasantville, which centers around the idyllic Parker family of Father George, played by William H. Macy, his wife Betty, played by Joan Allen, and their two children, Bud and Mary Sue. David tries to reason with the repairman who communicates with him through the Parker's TV set, but succeeds only in chasing him away. David and Jennifer must now pretend they are, respectively, Bud and Mary Sue Parker. Jennifer is angry at being stranded in black and white, but she and David begin exposing the town to issues such as sex, personal freedoms, styles of art, and literature. Pleasantville soon begins changing quickly, where previously black and white objects and people begin to develop into full and vibrant colors. Jennifer embraces her inner bad girl and begins corrupting the two innocent-for-their-own good high school students, which leads to catastrophic results for the basketball team, Lover's Lane, and the local malt shop where all the kids hang out. David may have wanted to leave originally, but he feels a sense of belonging, so much so that when the TV repairman returns and berates him for altering the show so much, David turns off the TV, relinquishing his ability to go home in the process. While the mayor's concerned, people in Pleasantville begin to explore hidden abilities and revel in their new freedoms. As the film progresses, George and Betty's relationship begins to strain as Jennifer teaches Betty about carnal and other updated delights that were previously unknown in the innocent Pleasantville. While George wants everything to always stay the same in uh, perfect perfection at home and at the bowling alley. Meanwhile, the self-important bully mayor of Pleasantville and most of the mortified adult residents try to mitigate the increasingly damaging colorization of their perfect little black-and-white world, despite changes happening before their very eyes at every turn, with teenagers experimenting in sex, reading racy literature, and twin beds are replaced with controversially forbidden double beds. When Betty and Bill, the malt shop owner played by Jeff Daniels, spend the night together where Bill paints Betty's nude figure onto the malt shop's window to take things one step too far, the uptight Pleasantville population passes laws against the coloreds and begin terrorizing them at every turn, including arresting David and Bill and putting them on trial in front of the entire town. Does the town hold David and Bill guilty for changing the town's youth into embracing change against the town's desire to stay innocent? Will George and Betty resolve their differences when both of them have different plans for their future? Will David and Jennifer ever return to the present after making such drastic changes to not only their lives, but those lives of the fictional town of Pleasantville? Watch the film to find out.
All right. Films are influenced by the times they're made in, and we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores's Headlines of the Time. The year was 1998. Retired astronaut John Glenn became the oldest man to fly in space at the age of 77 aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. 20 U.S. states filed an antitrust case against Microsoft, alleging that the company had a monopoly on the software market. The Good Friday Agreement for Northern Ireland was signed by the British and Irish governments. Tony Blair also became the first Prime Minister of the UK to address the Parliament of Ireland. The first MP3 player was released in Japan. The film Titanic won an Oscar for Best Picture. The Broadway musical Grease closed after 1,503 performances. The minimum wage in 1998 was $5.15. The median household income was $38,568, and the retail price for a new car averaged just over $17,000. The average price for a gallon of gas was $1.06. <laughs> a, ga- a gallon of milk cost $3.16. That kind of surprised me, because now you can get it on sale for like two fifty. Um, a loaf of bread was $1.26, and a dozen eggs were $0.88. Cents. Titanic also became the highest-grossing film of all time at that time, earning more than $580 million domestically, and it won a record-tying 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Director. Other films released in 1998 included Meet Joe Black, Shakespeare in Love, The Truman Show, American History X, Lethal Weapon 4, The Wedding Singer, and Bobby's Pick for one of the 100 best movies of all time, Pleasantville. And that's a look at 1998. You know, and as we record this just this weekend, Titanic got passed by Top Gun Maverick for uh, gross at the domestic box office. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Yes. Really? Is that inflation adjusted or in real dollars? Oh, no, that's not inflation adjusted. That's that's real dollars from today. So inflation, I'm sure Titanic is still higher, but that's like the fifth or sixth film to pass Titanic. Avatar, Avengers Endgame, Star Wars Force Awakens, Spider-Man No Way Home, Black Panther, and now I, th- and now I think Top Gun Maverick. So... Where at one point in time, I thought no one will ever pass that. Now they do it on a frequent basis. <laughs> but nowhere near the international, the worldwide box, uh, box office for uh, Titanic. That's still way, way up there. Top Gun Maverick's not there quite yet. Still haven't watched Titanic. I uh, still haven't watched Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> I'm not that excited for it. Anyways, let's get on to the review of uh, Bobby's film. All right. Uh, we usually start by talking about the casting, and we uh, this is no different. Uh, I I would characterize Tobey Maguire as the lead in this film, playing David. Uh, Bobby, in an early role from Tobey Maguire, pre-Spider-Man by a few years. Uh, what did you think of his performance in the film? 
I thought he was wonderful. I think he was the glue for this film. I know there were lots of other wonderful, wonderful actors and actresses that were that played in it that were perfectly cast as well. But I thought Toby was the perfect David, and I believed that the fact that he he wanted to live in that world, and then as the world started to unravel, his his facial expressions and his uh, his intelligence came out and he became the star of the film as as the film progressed so by the end of it i really enjoyed his character and i will say also that the two scenes that especially where he's with Joan Allen uh, and the the makeup putting on and off that is mirrored in real life mother uh, later on in the film I thought both of those not only were great bookends but also I loved that scene with he and Joan Allen uh, especially it just it, it it was so such a touching scene between a, a mother and a son it just I felt the authenticity of it so I, I, I thought that he was wonderful yeah um, I thought he was well cast and I thought he really embodied the character and those two scenes that Bobby mentioned, I think, were the best scenes of the of the entire film. So he just just brought such heart to the role and, and was completely believable. Yeah, I mean, he, he played it a particular way. I, I didn't care much for his performance, to be honest. And I thought the character was really poorly written, <laughs> kind of going from this this high school nerdy kid who who really finds his element as kind of a spiritual guru for this town in transition i didn't i didn't find the premise of that character very believable and i thought he had a way of playing it that was just almost just kind of a little over the top maybe even treacly where you know he 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 gave it this this air of of like joy and awe that that I thought was just not consistent with a guy with that background and the way they set him up. So it's kind of that disparity between the setup and and his ultimate blossoming that I just didn't think was well enough established that it was kind of really bothering me by the time of the courtroom scene. And I, I you know, I don't know to what extent that's writing or direction, but he really seemed to, to dive into it with with both feet. You know, Toby Maguire is this, this, this. He has this dichotomy where I like him in certain films, and then I don't like him in others. And I, I'd only seen this once. I saw it on. I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on VHS when it came out. Probably, I guess, probably later in '98. And I've never watched it again. I mean, not even seen bits of it on television. So I've only vaguely remembered the story of this film. And obviously, when I saw it, he wasn't Tobey Maguire of today, you know, post Spider-Man. In fact, uh, you know, quite quite a few years before Spider-Man. And, you know, I, I, I end up I do like his performance. I think Matt's being a little, a little overcritical. I do have problems with his character, but I don't I don't blame it on the performance. I, I think his performance is actually really good. And I think he does is is. As Bobby said, has really great uh, chemistry with Joan Allen, but they just done the ice storm a few months before this, or a year before this, so they had worked together previously. And there's a it, you could see kind of a comfort level between the two of them that uh, I, th- I think it only develops because you've done other projects. And uh, I I really liked his scenes with her, not so much with Reese Witherspoon, but I really liked his scenes with Joan Allen playing his I guess television mother, if you will. 
talking about Reese, with, Reese Witherspoon, Lori, what did you think of her playing Jennifer in the film? I, I think that her acting was was good as it always is. I'm a huge fan of Reese Witherspoon. I think she's um, one of the most talented actresses of, of our generation and, and producer and, and everything else that she does. But I didn't think the character was was very fleshed out or well-written. I really, I, I feel like all of the characters in the film, they just touched the surface. Like it was a really good idea, but they just didn't develop it fully. And I, I just think the film had so much more potential. And I think her character had so much more potential. I, I just feel like, but it wasn't like you said about Tobey Maguire. It wasn't because of her. It was, it was, I think the writing I'm probably in the minority on this, but I've never been a Reese Witherspoon fan. And for some reason, I just kind of have a (laughs) natural dislike of her. I don't even know where it comes from. So almost anything she's in, it's already kind of starting with a handicap for me just personally. And this movie did nothing to change that. So what you're there saying? There was some you, girl in elementary school that like bit you or something that looked like maybe her. a monkey once threw poop at me at the zoo or something, <laughs> and I've just associated that with with Reese Witherspoon. So you ran against her in in high school for a political position, didn't you? Yeah, she crushed me. <laughs> so what you're saying, Matt? You've Cupcakes. already pre-ordered your Legally Blonde three movie tickets. So this is. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I have to watch the first two first, but yeah, sure. Well, it completes the trilogy, the saga, if you will, of the Legally Blonde series. Bobby? Well, I will actually somewhat agree with both of them, uh, both Matt and Lori in this, in that I, I do like Reese, Reese Witherspoon. I loved her in Man in the Moon and from ever, ever since then, but there are times where I think she's a bit miscast. And I think this is one of those times. I, I don't think that she was the perfect choice for the role. I think she she went into it with, you know, jumped into it with both feet. And I thought she did a, an admirable job. But this is also where I believe that uh, where Laurie was stating that she was underdeveloped. What was interesting to me was that her character was really important to the story at as the catalyst for Pleasantville's changes coming so quickly, um, especially for the 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 dicey, um, more corrupting type of of actions. But her character towards the about the last, I almost want to say the last third of the film, definitely the last act, she kind of disappeared almost uh, and became an afterthought. And and then the way they ended it with her character to me was extremely odd. The fact that she was the one that you know what happened uh, because there was a fictional world and she just vanished. Um, you know that was a really odd thing for me to to see uh, with her character. But I thought that she she played it well as as well as she could. Um, again, I think that that this was might have been a little bit underwritten, and I, I I just don't see her as the 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 naughty girl. I think she, her character at the end was more Reese Witherspoon than the beginning. So I, as an actress, she's fine. Uh, in the role, she was average. Well, uh, I too will be kind of in between Matt and Laurie, but I, I think in a different way. I do not consider Reese Witherspoon one of the greatest actors, actresses of our generation by any stretch of the imagination. I like Reese Witherspoon, and I think she has a wheelhouse 
this ain't it. And that's that's ultimately the, my problem with it. I I you know I still have never seen Man in the Moon, although I've heard it's a really really good f- film, and she was really good in it. It's Freeway that caught my attention with Reese Witherspoon first, which is probably closer to this role. Uh, you know, actually, this is probably a little bit uh, cleaner cut than what her character was in Freeway. But uh, that was such a striking performance as a young actress that I always remembered her from that. You know, this this is where not watching this film for over 20 years is really was the detriment. I didn't remember her playing kind of the slutty character. And I was I was kind of uh, jarred by that. Uh, It's just it doesn't seem to be that doesn't seem to be the character that Reese Witherspoon typically plays any longer. And I hate to typecast her because I think that's unfair for any actress. But it took me a while to get used to that. And, but I'll agree with Bobby that and Matt, she kind of just disappears in the third act and her conversion to I'm suddenly going to read a book and stay in this world and go to college doesn't, it, you know, it just is so abbreviated that I don't understand the transition. I don't understand the evolution, the character arc for that, for what presents it other than I picked up a book and read it and it just, to me, that was so abbreviated. It really was jarring. At, at the tail end of the film. So I, I, I thought they, that they did a disservice to her character. I mean, she did an okay job as a performance. I just, I, I thought her character was well, well, way underdeveloped. And bringing up the, finally our third Joan Allen playing Betty in the film. Uh, Matt, what did you think of her in the film? She's fine. She looked apart and, um, she turned in a good performance. I, I have no, um, I, I may not have any strong reactions either way. I think it was good work. Actually, I think Joan Allen was one of the strongest parts of this film. I think she was not only perfectly cast, I thought she was she perfectly acted the role. I think it was a, a very difficult role for her to play because it, it is it's hard to be that the the put upon, you know, perfect wife from the fifties, the the Mrs. Cleaver with the pearls. And and turning her into a basically uh, somebody who is revolutionizing her sexual being in the middle of a film while she's still supposed to be the the perfect mom. And then, like I said, I, I still think that that scene of Toby and she with the makeup, she was vulnerable and totally fearful of what was going to happen to her. I mean, that was, and you could see that in her eyes. And that's what I loved about it was that's when Toby took that control and just made her whole again. It was, I I loved that scene. And I think that was the heart of the film was it was, you're seeing a real world person dealing with a fictional character and trying to make them human all at the same time while the entire world is exploding uh, or imploding all around them. So I thought that was extremely well done. She was an extremely good actress, and I think that she was the strength of this film. I'm going to agree with Bobby that she was the strength of, of this film. Her performance was. Um, she. I think she just perfectly personified that 50s mom, June Cleaver, and then you, you could just see her transformation into this this somewhat liberated woman but again I wanted more I didn't feel I just feel like that character could have had so much more 
and shown so much more. It was such a great idea, this entire film. But I just think that it was, I, I liked the word I think Patrick used, abbreviated. So I never saw the full development of these characters. But her character, I would say, was the most developed. And I think her performance attributed to that. I think Joan Allen is one of our uh, the greatest actresses of our generation. Sorry, Lori, not Reese Witherspoon. And, and, and <laughs> they both are. Yeah, she. I mean, she's delivered uh, like rock solid performances, especially going in the late '90s. You know, this uh, the Contender, uh, this film, uh, Ice Storm, Nixon, Notebook. Notebook. I mean, there there is just uh, uh, one great performance after another. I, and I agree with Laurie that this is one of the it, it probably the best performance in the film. And this film has some really solid acting from a lot of character actors from William H. Macy uh, to God, I can't remember the guy from uh, Few Good Men that it was this was his last role. And I'm blanking on his name, which is that sucks because he's a, he was a great character actor. But and. Bobby's not Toby Maguire. No, JT Walsh. JT Walsh. JT Walsh. Thank you, Lori. I can't believe I blanked that. But, you know, but Joan Allen was such a, a pivotal performance in this. And I agree with Lori that it's still abbreviated, but probably the most developed. And I wish I would have had probably 10 minutes extra of that storyline for that character because I would like to have seen that complete arc that I just don't think it quite got there and i i, I left wanting uh, for some continued evolution and to see what happens after you know after toby mcguire i'd like to have seen where her character goes after that all right bobby what about symbolism and hidden meanings i gave you some hints this time because this was all in my research it just kept coming up repeatedly so i threw it down for you so what do you got well i i've some of those same things, and I, I try to keep it somewhat short anyway, but uh, the twin beds are the physical embodiment of the fake sterilization of the 50s television that's replaced quickly by the outrageous double beds that show that times are a-changing. The blank library books instantly filling out as David summarizes their contents symbolizes how once we begin to educate the uneducated, their eyes open to a brand new world of possibilities and wonder. Using the term coloreds symbolize the name calling and segregation of the United States in the 1950s of African Americans being subjected to second class citizenship even within their own communities. And the courtroom scene, which is very distinct. I mean, you, everywhere you look on online for a picture of this film, that's the one, is distinctly symbolic of To Kill a Mockingbird, where Atticus Finch is defending his colored client in front of a first floor courtroom filled with whites, while the second floor is filled with coloreds. Yeah, I was thinking about the the civil rights aspect when when I saw your outline, and and I think that that um, courtroom scene seems like a deliberate homage mm. to To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't think there's any doubting that. I I, I struggle because it feels like the civil rights narrative breaks down pretty quickly if if we try to view it as allegorical. So I you know I think there are moments in this movie where maybe they're they're paying respect or, you know, it's some kind of homage, but it, that, you know, that seemed a little, a little forced to me just because I don't, I mean, we get to my section, I have a, I have a different look at it. And, and I think that it, it breaks down under its own weight pretty quickly. If, if we go civil rights too much with this movie. Oh, I can't wait to hear your section. <laughs> um, I, again, I just think there was so much cleverness like the calling 
them colors was that it just it could have been taken so much farther there was so much potential there and i and i just feel like it it fell flat well they, there was also symbolism based on the the bible i mean if you look at the garden of eden with the with the apple and the the moon and and the the flaming tree and but he wasn't the one that introduced the problem it was jennifer so that fell flat for me too but those were just symbols of of the things that were going on around them. Yeah, but I I I did I just thought it fell flat. I I mean it was obvious symbolism, but it just I just it just didn't work for me. To me, watching it, the the colored and the kind of the garden of Garden of Eden aspect of that, it it kind of what Laurie said. It was obvious that you're trying to do some sort of symbolism. But I don't see how your symbolism is symbolism is necessarily forwarding the story. And I'm very curious what Matt has to say. So I'm kind of trying to abbreviate myself because I want to see what his take is on it. That because is as much as I I love I love the aspect of you're going to do an homage to things uh, such as To Kill a Mockingbird or uh, J T Walsh in front of the bowling alley scoreboard which is kind of an homage to Patton I guess uh, th- that I, I like that aspect it could, th- the film lover in me the cinephile does but what are you trying to tell me about the character what are you trying to tell me about the story other than you're giving me those elements and I, I don't necessarily think that the those homages necessarily move the story or were quite as effective other than hey I'm just showing you something that it seems remarkably familiar but but Matt, what about your moral universe? I'm curious what you have to say now. Yeah, there's a few points I I, I think are worth exploring, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go over them briefly each, and and see what you guys find more interesting. The first one is that I was troubled watching this movie. This is this movie is like a couple degrees away from a horror film. You start with number one, the these characters are transported to this other place. And what this other place represents, you know, we'll see. But you have these people who are, you know, one way of looking at them, they're almost like NPCs, right? Like non-playable characters from a video game. But their their moral agency is is questionable. And the movie doesn't even seem to dwell on some of the implications of the character's actions. Like sexualizing someone who doesn't even know what an erection is is a very morally dubious action, right? He's basically a small child who's ne- who, who, who doesn't know how his penis works. And she takes him out and shows him how it works. It, it's like, again, almost almost like pedophilia fantasy material, but played for, for laughs. And, and that theme runs strong throughout all of this, that you basically have this group of I mean, they're not subhumans, but they're not they're not fully human, right? They're like a simulacra of of people. They're they're innocent like small children, and then they're sexualized, and it leads to uh, it leads to all kinds of consequences. That the movie is not even like acknowledgement to to grapple with these issues was extremely creepy to me, and it was it was. It was strange to watch. So second, I I think the movie comes together almost completely as looking at the the 
Hebrew story of the fall from the serpent's perspective, right? Where you have this, this ostensible paradise created by this, this magical character with the remote control. And they kind of throw the fall aspect at you pretty, pretty, pretty heavy handedly when, when he shows him eating the apple and says, you're out of here, you know, pal, I'm going to kick you out of here. So it's like God ejecting um, Adam from the garden. But, but the whole thing's turned around such that we're given the serpent's perspective on why this is a good thing, despite the fact that it introduced, you know, uh, violence and, and chaos into the world. But that God's paradise is viewed as the prison. And you even notice, if you notice the breakfast scene, the breakfast scene was weird. I, I didn't watch a lot of those old shows. I probably watched some Leave It to Beaver and Isle of Lucy, but they have this massive breakfast. And she gives her three different um, pork products to eat for breakfast. And it's really kind of strange. And even she even tops it off with a ham steak, right? So they're in God's paradise eating what the Jews would have thought to be an unclean animal, which I thought was was kind of really accelerating that, that thing along. But it ultimately... You know, uh, Toby Maguire's speech at the end is is to the effect of the chaos is worth the experience, right? That's that's kind of what he gets at. The third thing, I I, I wanted to kind of ask you guys a question because I'm curious how you react. But I, I I would be curious how each of you answers. Uh, who who introduced violence into that world? How did violence come to be? When they fought over, well, it was, you could either say it was when they fought over the remote and broke and broke it and needed a repair or that it was the repairman. Yeah, but that's in the outside world. The the first violence in, oh, in Pleasantville. But if they hadn't entered that world. The first violence was Jennifer in the car with, with uh, the, the boy. Paul Walker. With Paul, yeah, I, I think that was the first. I, I mean, if if the term violence meaning they they violated the sanctity of the world, I think that was the first real violent act. I mean, I, I agree with Bobby in that nature. I mean, I tried to go back through the film, and you know, Toby Maguire when he defends Joan Allen is the first one to become somewhat physically violent although she was being intimidated at the time so the, you could see that kind of aggression already coming from the characters but i'm trying to think there was something else before that uh, but obviously i mean i think the the point matt's trying to make is it's jennifer and david are the ones who introduce the violence from their the world to this idyllic set, setting of you know pleasantville where everything is perfect and then and then suddenly it's not because they bring in a more modern thought process, which I assume is a commentary on modern, somewhat on modern society. Although they're trying to, you know, shoehorn it in as saying, "Hey, this is this is life experience, and this makes life better. It makes you, I guess, four color, if you will." Well, that does bring up a point, though, that I I kind of struggled with with the with the writing is that. If you look at the old 50s shows, a lot of the characters, I mean, it, it is totally unrealistic. You have characters that even the villains are, you know, Barney Fife walks around as a, as a 
uh, with a with one bullet in his revolver specifically, and it, and he would get in trouble anytime he would go near an act of violence with that one bullet and no one would ever challenge him to that level. And same thing goes with the leave it to beaver. I mean, you've got the, the Wally's best friend, I forget his name, Eddie, I think was his name yeah. was a total liar, but he never, Eddie you know, he, yeah, but he, he wasn't a, a bad guy. He was always, you know, he had a, a good heart in this. You've got big Bob. Who's the mayor who is a flat out bully and everybody in town you know, when he walks through, everybody just parts like the Red Sea. He rules the roost. He was and, very McCarthyist. Yeah, and and so there's a there. I think this was this had a lot of subtext that wasn't explored before Toby and um and Reese arrived in town. So I think this was a little more. It's a little darker Pleasantville than it would have been in Mayberry RFD, if that makes sense. So I, I think it was just they were just the catalysts to take it the next step. But I think they were already bubbling at the surface at the time that they arrived. That's just my take from the violence. Matt, who do you think introduced violence? Well, well, I don't think the movie gives us any reason to think that that these people were capable of violence before before the modern characters are introduced. They they didn't even know what a punch in the face was, despite the fact that they were already like book burning, you know, woman harassing Nazis, which again I think is just sloppy writing. But it's it's one of those things that that just watching the movie was kind of surreal in that it, it was so confident in its, in its outlook that it never seemed to want to grapple with any of that. Like these people go from this idyllic setting and, you know, Toby Maguire's speech is look, look, you know, we have some trade-offs, there's some growing pains, but, but the experience is worth it. But again, it, it, the, the, the full, the full weight of that never seems to enter into there that, that, um, what the trade-off they're making was going from, you know, repression, social repression, maybe lack of fulfillment and, and to a point now where violence and sexual violence is going to be a, a thing. It just felt, it felt so lazy to me, I guess that's most of it. Well, and, and even isolation because, you know, no one seems to leave Pleasantville ever until Jennifer does, you know, that's the first time you, you, some character seems to actually evolve and go someplace else and the world opens up, uh, at, at that point in time. So when you sit there and say that the repression and I mean, the, the, the isolation, everything stays the same. Everybody stays who they are at all times. Yeah. Stasis really. Yeah. Which is why I think, I don't think the filmmaker would want to own this as a commentary on the civil rights era. Because you're I mean, you're effectively saying that, you know, integration and equal rights, while bringing some experience and and, you know, vividness to people's life is also going to introduce, you know, violence, contention and sexual predation into these communities. I, I, I think that's where I'd say I, I don't think that's what they intended because the, the allegory would start breaking down pretty hard. Well, and that kind of goes what, what what Lori and I kind of said is that there's this element where you have this symbolism or theme, but you don't. It, it's like you're 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 trying to introduce the symbolism 
in there without actually making it a story element or develop it story-wise. It's obviously, right. you know, a comment on, you know, segregation, but how, what, what were you trying to say about segregation and how was it, how are you saying it with this particular film? And I think that's where this film it, it, in its, in its true shortcoming to me is that within a two hour and 15 minute film, he's trying to talk about an entire culture war basically, or, or, you know, I think if this were to be as an example, a mini series or even, or even better, a series where they were able to expand characters and, and lay out these, these different storylines that you guys are talking about. I, I think it would have been a much stronger story. I, I don't think it's lazy writing or lazy directing as much as I think this is just so much to unpack within a two hour and 15 minute film that they went from fantasy world to reality in a real fast fashion without a whole lot of character development to, to make them. So because it, the truth is, is that these people, if you, I mean, in a vacuum, none of this would ever happen. But but in the 1950s, even in Leave it to Beaver time, these were people that are from World War Two, where, you know, they they did live through the Nazis themselves, that the adult men would have been in their 30s and 40s would have been people that experienced World War Two. And even the viewers of those films back then or those TV shows would have experienced Nazism and book burning and so on. So, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of things. It's just in two and a half or two hours and 15 minutes i'm more forgiving of that in our storyline than i would be if i I just wish they could have expanded the story more along those lines so may may i ask if i was the only one who was who was somewhat troubled by the the uh reese witherspoon's uh scene with that boy in the car the first one troubled troubled first time i ever saw it i thought the same thing because these are these are Ken and Barbie dolls, and uh, to be honest, from a from a writing standpoint of the 1950s, you know, Andy Taylor, the sheriff of Mayberry, was he was a eunuch. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, right. yeah. o- Opie would just magically his son, and it's, it's the completely same thing. Completely asexual, here. right? Yeah, I mean, you've got the beds, two different beds side by side. These people have never even learned about sex, yet they've got two children. So I mean, all of these things, it just it's it's just the it's the world that they created for Pleasantville that they were going to just expand on once they they threw reality at them. That's all. But yes, I think it bothered everybody whenever when she did that. Like, I think all of that just went too far and and too fast. Like it didn't have to like it was just hard to believe that Joan Allen's character w- would suddenly have burst, her, burst pic- a tree her nude into flame. Her nude picture. You know what I mean? And and just I don't know. I just think it went too far. You know, and I kind of imagine the Reese Witherspoon and Paul Walker scene similar to Tobey Maguire in the book, that, that once she started describing the penis, then it suddenly magically started to appear uh, for the first time. You know, that, and that, and that's my offhanded joke that probably will get edited out, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should keep that. I had... it, w- it was good. <laughs> so, un- unfortunately. I, I nearly did... followed up with a comment that, that I would have probably asked you to edit out. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but as you describe it as like a eunuch type character, that was kind of like they, these characters have no, 
you know, capacity to understand what sex is. And so what do they need sex organs for? Because it's not something that you would see on a 1950s idyllic television show such as this. So, you know, why, why would the characters, I mean, when you describe them as Ken and Barbie, literally like Ken and Barbie plastic dolls, that that's all they are. They, 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 they fit a physical mold, but that's it. There's no utility to them. There's no actual purpose. Technically, that's what they were. They were just black and white actors running around on screen, but nobody ever even even the kiss. Paul Walker's character is talking about uh, you know giving her a pin several episodes down the line. I mean, it, and that's why Toby's like, "Oh, we're in that episode." So you know this this is over years of Pleasantville that he has memorized the storyline, but the characters themselves. I mean, those were those were Whitey's cookies that he stole and, and he wasn't supposed to get a kiss and so on. I mean, this isn't the back to the future time where Mrs. Uh, you know, Marty's mom is, is hitting on Marty. This is the stuff where you, you didn't get to second base until you were married. All right. What about the music in this film? Uh, score composed by Randy Newman, Academy award winning score composed by Randy Newman. Uh, Lori, uh, you're a fan of music. What did you think of the music in this film? I thought it was very pleasant. <laughs> it was. It was. I thought it fit. It um, really helped create the moods, and and it was very soothing. I, I really liked the soundtrack. Yeah, I, I didn't mind it. I don't ever recall being distracted by it, so I will give it a thumbs up. It's usually you know a pass fail with me, and I'll give it a pass. I really liked it. I thought it was really well done. A lot of times when you throw films in back in the in the day, they they play a lot of uh, rehashed rock around the clock type things from Happy Days. But I think in this case, they they picked the right songs in the right places, and then Randy Newman's originals that he brought in at, were at the right time. And I thought that just the I thought that they complemented one another quite well. Yeah, I think I, with this one, it was kind of I'm with Matt is I was surprised when I looked it up for the research for the film that Randy Newman did the score and it was Academy Award nominated. And I went gave me I had no real memory of anything in the film. It did not distract me, which is good, um, but it did not uh, cause me to be like, oh, I need to pick up the score because I'm really uh being influenced by the music it was just it was there um i did seem to remember like a lot of rock around the clock music in it but it was appropriately placed what was used i thought was done very very well uh, i didn't think it was overkill by any stretch of the imagination all right what about the ending of the film uh jennifer stays in well does she doesn't really stay in pleasantville she stays in the world of pleasantville and goes to college someplace else David actually returns to the real world and bonds with his mother, which uh, something he was uh, failing to do at the beginning of the film. What did you guys ultimately think of the ending of the film? I was deeply troubled by it. Um, <laughs> who are these people? I mean, are the are these human beings? Are the people outside of Pleasantville any any more or less innocent than the people within it? Like, is she going to go around teaching every boy in town what a penis is? Like, all of these implications, I feel like, need to at least be acknowledged or grappled with. And um, there's just none of that. Like, I'm going off to college. Like, what is there? Who? What are these entities you're interacting with? Uh, it, it, it bothered me so much that they didn't seem to care. 
I will agree with Matt. Uh, I, I think that the ending was the the worst part of the film. I think they ended it too quickly. I think it was they left way too many things wide open. I did not understand the, the we were talking about a fictional Pleasantville. And all of a sudden, when the entire world turns green or I'm sorry, turns color in the courtroom, all of a sudden, Main Street no longer ends at Oak Street and becomes Main Street all over again. It goes to Springfield, and she's going to college, which she never intended on doing in the first place. And all of a sudden, it, the world became real in Pleasantville, and it really bothered me that she stayed. That was the other thing that I didn't like about her character was she stayed behind. And basically, does she become Toby Maguire's grandmother? You know, have the I, I that really didn't make any sense to me. And I did like how Toby came back and he did he he mirrored the Joan Allen uh, makeup scene with his mother. I did like that, but there wasn't any acknowledgement whatsoever of Jennifer being left behind mm-hmm. in Pleasantville. There was no acknowledgement that Pleasantville is no longer a black and white TV in the 1950s by Don Knotts's character. He just kind of vanished. So it, it all of those kinds of things. And I mean, I, I, I didn't like the way they just dropped the ball at the very end of the film. And I think, like I said, I if this was a miniseries or a, a TV series, I would have expected so much more to it, and, and I would have loved to have known what happened. In this case, I do feel a bit cheated, and I think this was that was the weakest part of the film. Well, I think they the ball was dropped throughout the film. There's so much that was just not developed and not explored. And not just the ending, but I did really like the resolution with his mom because I thought that was probably the what I was most interested in is, you know, the mother left them for the weekend without even saying goodbye. Obviously, they longed for the love of their mother and a relationship with their mother. And then they had this air quotes, perfect mother in Pleasantville and and then he bonded with her and and I really did like that that came full circle where he had that moment with his real mom in the real world but I just I think that that's where I thought the movie was going to go was exploring the the mother child relationship and I was really disappointed um until that scene with um with his his real world mother but I, I just think a lot of there was just so much. It's like they just threw a little cookie, a little crumb piece of a cookie and said, isn't this interesting, but we're not going to explore it. And isn't this interesting, but we don't care. But then they focused on um, disturbing things, but it's spent so much time on that. But but I think the the if you, if you didn't go too far with things, the whole idea is interesting and I think there is so much symbolism and, and so much to tell with this story and I and I just think that that they didn't do it. Well and and let me finish my comment too was that the Joan Allen ending with the with George and Bill sitting on either side of her made no sense whatsoever. It was like she needed to make a decision one way or the other, and they best, they they left it completely wide open which direction she was going to go. That was unfair to her character as well as theirs too. So that was – sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I felt like that was kind of saying something too, but but what? 
I don't know. You didn't tell me enough. So much was just left there at the end. You know, Bobby kind of brought up what happened with Don Knotts? Gone. You know, no answers to that. Toby bonds with his mother, uh, which is great. Uh, but, you know, the sister is just disappeared and <laughs> is there a report file? <laughs> yeah, you know she was in high school with him she's his fraternal twin like we're, we're just gonna gloss over that that this teenage girl just disappeared entirely and we'll leave it at that uh, i mean there's so much that is so, so disturbing about that that where where i expected the film is that you know david and jennifer both to return to the real world to have learned something about themselves, David to possibly learn to be more involved in his existing world and not to be so focused on the idyllic television world that he's spent most of his life watching and Jennifer to appreciate that there are more important things in life than potentially just hooking up with boys. But Jennifer stays in, in a world where, you know, if it's in 1950s, women going to college not necessarily encouraged as much as it is in the modern world. So why would she choose to do it at that point? You know, I, I, I'm very perplexed about Jennifer staying there other than it just had, to, they just chose for that character to be different, to be different. I, I think that the natural progression would have been for both of them to return different people and applying what they learned in Pleasantville to their real lives. <laughs> and, and I'm just really bothered by the fact that, so what happened to Pleasantville? Is it a color television show? Is, is everybody doing each other? You know, is Joan Allen now in a threesome with the, the, the malt shop owner and her husband? I mean, it's just, <laughs> just so many questions I had at the end of this film was like, and you just left it wide open. And it just, I, I, yeah, it was just, I was just perplexed by everything in, in the ending of this film. The most likely outcome is the police come to question the last person his sister was seen alive with. He explains to them that she is now living in a TV show and he is charged with murder. <laughs> Not unless Barney Fife shows up with his, with his magic remote. Could he watch his sister at college? Is uh, that the show uh, who now? Who knows? Who knows? That's I, I, all good questions, Lori. Left completely unanswered. And that's legally blonde in the 60s. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Films Legacy nominated for three Academy Awards, winning none. Uh, lost Best Music, original original dramatic score. Uh, already stated, Randy Newman lost to Nicola Piovani from Life for Life is Beautiful. Uh, lost Best Costume Design and Best Art Decoration, Set Decoration. Both uh, lo categories lost to Shakespeare in Love. Uh, not on American Film Institute's uh, any list at this time. Made on a budget of approximately $60 million. Grossed uh, just over $49.8 million worldwide, so didn't even make its money back. At Rotten Tomatoes has at 85% critics and 79% audience. So a fairly well-reviewed film for its time. Lori, what do you think of Pleasantville, and would you put it in its in your top 100? I think the acting was brilliant, but I think the um, screenplay fizzled and just destroyed the movies. But I'd love to see it remade, um, minus some of the elements, and but explore. I just think there's so much potential. There, it's an interesting idea, but 
Matt brought up a lot of really great disturbing points. So if it was improved, <laughs> those elements, I think it could be, uh, like Bobby said, maybe a series. I, I think there's a lot of interesting thing to it and, and develop those things and, and those themes instead of just tossing out ideas and, and letting them fly, fly away like bubbles. But um, it is not in my, in my top 100. Matt? Probably not surprising anyone when I leave this one out of my top 100 at this point. This movie just troubles me. It, you know, I, um, I, think it, I think it got away from the writer, whether it was a scope issue or, or something else. I don't know, but they, they could not make this work in this amount of time. And I, I'm worried that they just hadn't thought what they wanted to accomplish through enough that I'm not sure they were going to make it work in any amount of time. I think I think they just they had a concept and they started chasing it and they, maybe they didn't know where it was going to go. And it just spiraled out of control on them, much like Reese Witherspoon's sexuality. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I am not as disturbed by it as Matt is. You know, unfortunately, I think this is a film where a gimmick or a special effect, this in this case, you know, using color special effects in a black and white world uh, was, hey, this is our idea for a film. And then they never fully developed the story behind it. I, I do agree with Bobby that I think you could take this concept, this idea and flesh it out more thoroughly in like a television series, miniseries or something like that. I, I don't know if anybody really wants that based off the fact that this film wasn't as, that successful in its time. Uh, but a, as a film, I don't think it actually worked. I, I think I, I find more fault in it now than I did when I first saw it. But I, I watched it. I saw it. I went, oh, that was entertaining. And, I, you know, I let it go. And now to review it for a podcast, I look at it for a more with a more more critical eye and I go, yeah, there's a lot more flaws than there is successes in this film. And I like the actors in it. Um, I think they do a decent job. I like the, the special effect. I just think the story elements, just there was too many gaping holes. And I, 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 at the end of the day, I'm like, I don't know what you want me to take away from this. And that's, that's the frustrating thing is that I, uh, what am I supposed to get from the final, you know, couple minutes of this film? But this is Bobby's uh, pick for top 100. So we'll give him the final word. Oh, needless to say, it's not my top 100. <laughs> <laughs> I will acknowledge everything that you guys are saying, because I agree with it. I really do. I, I, I still love this film. I think that, uh, yes, there are, there are gaping flaws and uh, honestly, I do believe it needed more time to cook, uh, not only in the writing, but in the directing. Um, I think the acting was really good for what they had. And I just think that there was a lot of underdeveloped characters, underdeveloped storylines. There wasn't an, a true ending that made sense for all characters and even Pleasantville, the world. So I think there were some parts where I think they missed it still makes this a wonderful film to me. I do see what Laurie says is the potential. This has 
tons of potential, even if it may not necessarily be because they want Pleasantville to be a, a series. I could see something like this where you have somebody that, that's into silent films and wants to go back into that world and, and expand on it. I mean, you could choose any era of film or television. It's just television's easier. But I, I think that this has all kinds of potential. I think the, the acting was good. I really loved the special effects. I think it was unique for its day. And even to this day, I don't think there are many that can do that, what this film did. So, yes, I think that the, um, that the, it, the legacy is appropriate. Um, it's not an Oscar-worthy uh, film, but it, I also think that this is a film that does raise a lot of questions that – could uh, create some great conversations with people, uh, good and bad. But it also it, it's something that, if if in the right hands and spread out over the appropriate amount of time that's needed to tell this type of story, I think it could be extremely enlightening and wonderful. And I think this is just the the beginning of it. So I do love the film. It's in my top one hundred, uh, maybe not in my my top ten, but it is in my top one hundred, and I will watch it again another time. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of Pleasantville. Thanks for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. As we stated before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about our occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube where you we're now releasing our podcasts exclusively. Once there, you can uh, subscribe to our account. You can hit the notifications bell so, uh, bell so you can get updates of when we post new material. You can give us a like or a dislike. And, of course, you can leave comments about our opinions, the film that we're reviewing, or even a suggestion for a film that you think should be in the top 100 films of all time. Of course, we always like the feedback that is positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Movie House Memories. Join us next time when it is Matt's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time. And he is nominating 1995's Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Until oh, that's a good one. <laughs> until, <laughs> until then, I'm Patrick. I'm going to go paint Joan Allen on a wall. Where's my dinner? And I'm going to try to talk my wife into some of them uh, double beds. <laughs> God, I would sleep so much better. You, you oh. don't know. <laughs> My wife is a black belt in blanket fighting. Bl- bl- blanket <laughs> fighting, and it would take. It, my wife would actually have to physically get out of the bed to come hit me to tell me to stop snoring. I mean, that was, <laughs> and I think that alone, I would sleep better during the night because she wouldn't do it. She just wouldn't do it. But uh, we'll see you all next time at our house.
This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.